I'm really excited for our conversation today. Uh, racial tension in our churches is something that I think over the last three to four years, people have probably felt at an all-time high. And just so you know, we're about to head into a, another election cycle that I would say most churches are nowhere close to ready for. But either way it goes, we're about to go right back into the storm. And the question to some degree goes, especially for diverse movements or diverse church cultures that really pride themselves on having a multicultural sort of ethic, the question is, does racism still function in those cultures that maybe in some ways feel like they have solved or cured racism? And today I have a guest that I think is uniquely qualified for many different reasons. A lot of times when I have someone come on they're not necessarily in the full-time ministry. I talk about the church all the time. Uh, the church isn't just the church. It's also an employer. And one thing, one of the things I've noticed, one of the things I'm really excited about in terms of this conversation is I'm going to be able to talk to a minister, someone who is currently paid by the church, but who is openly talking about racism that happens in churches. And so I've got Kevin Holland today. Kevin serves as a senior pastor of Turning Point, uh, Turning Point Church, Los Angeles, and an evangelist and elder with the Los Angeles International Church of Christ. He has a Master of Arts in Christian Ministry degree from Harding School of Theology, go Harding, is a coach <laughs> in the Racial Justice and Unity Center Network is a member of the Christians Seeking Justice National Justice Ministry and mentors church leaders around the United States. He and his wife, Tracena, is that how, how, how we say her name? Uh, Tracena. 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 Just call her Tracena. <laughs> okay. Have two daughters, Tori and Kennedy, a son-in-law, Tori's husband, Derek Hinton, and a perfect granddaughter, Mia Love Hinton. Kevin. Welcome to the channel. Hey, man. Thank you. Honored to be here. So happy to see you. So happy to be on. Well, I've wanted to connect. You and I were just talking offline. I've wanted to connect with you for quite some time. You and I have a lot of shared sort of contacts. Our network overlaps tremendously. Um, yes. As I'm getting ready to, to write a book with Michael Burns on the, the traumatic effects of intergenerational racism and so forth, uh, you and I, I, I'm really excited about this conversation today for many reasons. Well, I, again, appreciate you having me on, and I'm excited as well. My street cred here in L.A. has been boosted by the fact that I'm going to be on a Kyle Spears <laughs> podcast. So, <laughs> oh, That's you. humbling. That, that's, definitely, <laughs> that's definitely humbling. Well, let's start out with the basic question. Uh, tell us a little bit about your conversion and why you went into the ministry. Okay. I uh, grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, was recruited by uh, the late Sybil Mobley, who was the dean at uh, Florida A&M University. It's HBCU in Tallahassee, Florida, capital city of Florida. The big state school there is a Florida State University. And I uh, was a freshman in the winter of 1979, yes, that many years ago, and uh, the uh, there had begun a campus ministry planted from Crossroads by Bruce and Robin Williams, uh, called uh, that uh, became a part of the Call Street Church of Christ, and they had a campus ministry at FSU, and there were some a group of people that uh, reached began to reach out to FAM Florida A University FAMU, and so uh, I met Bill Whiteman and Dave Moss who 
coincidentally, David Muss is still an elder. He's out here in the Lighthouse region of the L.A. church. He's an elder. And he and uh, Bill reached out to me in, uh, let's see, February of 1979. I thought they were selling drugs. I've told the story a million times. Bill's a white dude with a, uh, had a, a blue jean jacket on and jeans and cowboy boots. Dave Moss, a uh, dark skinned black dude, trench coat, gym shoes, thought they were selling drugs on, on uh, the second floor of Young Hall. Why would these, why would these two unlikely people be together? And uh, ended up invite me to a Bible study. And I had one of those moments where your head says, I don't want anything to do with this. And your mouth says, sure, I'd be open. So anyway, uh, convicted, obviously not in the life of a disciple, really inspired by their level of love and commitment. And so I was baptized in, um, on March 12, 1979. And back in that day, I was a part of campus ministry leadership, campus advanced back then which is, I think, was the precursor to the Alpha Omega. Didn't want to go into the ministry. Most of the guys in the ministry sort of the, the vibe, I, and I don't mean this negatively, but sort of blue blazers, khaki pants, weeds and loafers, kind of frat dude. And that just wasn't my vibe and mm. not uh, didn't have anything against them, but didn't see myself as one of those guys, campus ministry mm. guy. But um, graduated, got a job as a banker in Atlanta. It was involved in the Lenox Church of Christ, which Sam Lang was a minister there, dear friend. And, um, you know, was in an urban setting and saw the vision of, you know, um, if you devote yourself to full-time ministry, you get to spend the brunt of your time helping people um, fall in love with God and, and get their eternal destiny on straight and i just thought mm. man that, that's what i want to devote my life to helping people understand how valuable they are to god that he is real uh they bear his image and therefore have value and that uh, he does exist and does want them to know that he's with them so that was the that was inspiration for going in you know it, it like i was saying a little bit ago it it's almost taboo nowadays to talk about some of the culture things is we were just on in passing with Will Archer. Those of you today, I've got a very loaded day. I had the spiritual abuse live stream last night. And then today I've got back-to-back interviews, um, uh, with, uh, Will Archer and with Kevin. And we were just kind of talking in the last interview about culture is really at the crux and, you know, culture is something that can be controlled by dominant culture. Right. Even the, the term dominant culture, if you're watching this right now, I want you to notice what that just kicked in your body. What did you just feel when I said dominant culture? Did you feel shame? Did you feel attack? Did you feel like this just got politicized? Be curious, right? The body holds the story. One of the things I've noticed about a lot of ministry staff who have been in a ministry position during this pandemic and all the racial politics stuff is many of them have had to go like, they've had to close, keep their mouths shut. You kind of breaking the mold here a little bit. You've been a minister and an advocate for social justice, and you've been openly talking about it. Again, many ministers feel very reticent, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I can't, this is taboo. What, what's allowed you to take a stand? I mean, you're, you're in ministry. Are you out of your mind? I mean, what, how do you do this? <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm probably the majority of people that know me would probably say that the latter he's out of his mind and they, you know, they <laughs> deal with me, but I appreciate the question. It's, it's uh, such a great question. And honestly, the past several years, 2020 on that, I've told people for me, 
and and you know, uh, I, I feel uh, I just think it was the spirit's leading. It was like a second conversion for me, not in terms mm. obviously of salvation, but mm-hmm. in terms of having my eyes open. It's not as though I didn't realize I'm a you know an American citizen in dark skin and all that that means until 2020. But it was the magnitude, the degree, the uh, depth of uh, the the problem of uh, racism in the United States, and also uh, realizing that our church as as life giving and God filled and spirit filled and and uh, heroically faithful and uh, evangelistic as we have been and still are, we still are an American institution. And therefore, mm-hmm. we have some of the same strengths of other parts of American culture and some of the weaknesses. I was talking with someone yesterday about, you know, uh, some of the things we've inherited from the American Restoration Movement, our, our family of origin. And so a deep love for the scriptures, um, a deep conviction about just doing what the scriptures teach and not, not uh, you know, buying into a lot of creeds in, in terms of, you know, things that we feel like are necessary for salvation, but also some of the things that we're not as strong in, our pneumatology, our, our sense of understanding and uh, giving emphasis to the Holy Spirit has mm. not historically been as strong as our Christology or our theology. You know, and I have a friend that jokes about we kind of feel like in the name of the father, the son and the other guy, you know, and this, <laughs> you know, he's he's typically not been, you know, and, and some of it is a reaction to charismatic groups that feel like overemphasized things. So my point is that in any spiritual family or any group, you're going to inherit good things and, and not so good things. And one of the things I believe we've inherited from our roots is this idea of being apolitical. And Mm -hmm. that is what so many ministers uh, and I have been conditioned. I think that's a huge word. We've been conditioned to think that's the way to be. Politics is inherently divisive. And you're a minister. You're trying to reach, you know, red and blue, you know, you know, Rick Warren's famous for saying, I'm not right wing, I'm not left wing, I like the whole bird, I want both wings. And so the <laughs> idea is to not not be caught in, you know, red or blue and, and, and that kind of thing. But uh, what has been obvious, particularly over the past several years, is that beneath people's uh, political ideas lurks un, undealt with parts of their heart mm. and uh, unchallenged biases or blind spots or, or as well as as things people have on on right and we're just used to hey don't talk about politics uh it's as though it's as though you know we've never we're not comfortable being challenged in that area and i also so so i'm not i don't believe it's a political issue so i i tell i ask people so the voting rights act and the, the um, civil rights acts of 64 and 65 were those Political or were they moral? Uh, was the mm. civil rights movement political or moral? Uh, mm. King famously talked about, you know, a law might not make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, which I think is important. And so, I don't, I don't, I don't accept that to me false uh, dichotomy or false frame. And uh, in 2020, 
you see that you see a 21st century lynching on on video you see the incredible just deeply evil uh cavalier attitude of the murderer you see this spasm of of anger and grief pouring out around the whole world millions and millions of people saying this is wrong it wasn't just this act it's the fact that this act could happen in 2020 and that uh there's so much uh, you know uh so many people of color this is a tangent uh cow but something i realized you, you could do this in our churches interview the staffs of the churches and i guarantee you when you look at you interview the men for instance on our staff we've got white black asian latin x but the only people that have been racially po profiled by police are black men on our staff hmm. and coincidentally who would have known all of us from different backgrounds different parts of the country so that experience of uh police either police brutality in, in its uh largest form or just a different way of being treated by police. And I've had both great experiences and horrible experiences at the hands of, of white policemen, black as well. Um, when, when you look at that, it's obvious that the echoes, the, the aftershocks of race-based chattel slavery, of reconstruction, of Jim Crow, war on drugs, all of those things, still there are still echoes still are in a society that has deeply racist attitudes among a majority of people and among a large percentage of Christians, though you would not know that. Like we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have known some of the attitudes that we know now had not 2020 happened, right? We, we wouldn't have said, oh, so you, you actually think you actually think that or you actually believe that. So anyway, my 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 conviction was I, it broke my heart. And I feel like I've gone through the five stages of grief mm. in terms of it broke my heart that this could happen in 2020. It also broke my heart that people that I have done church with for years, obviously the, the only uh, African-American leading one of the churches out here in L.A. for many years or one of the reasons, one of the few, now, thank God, there are a lot more, but historically, we've not had as many people of color leading, uh, people that you go on vacations with and study with each other's kids and spend holidays with, and, and we'll talk about purity and dealing with finances and marriage and, and super intimate stuff. But when it comes to this area, now, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm on my own. You don't want to talk about this or you... You, you don't want to, uh, why is it that people in the church are less outraged, they're less indignant, they're less filled with empathy and compassion than people that I see marching on the street that I don't even know? It, it just it just hit me as there's something wrong here. And my feeling was, okay, I may make a, a lot of mistakes in the future, but one of them I'm not going to make is I'm not going to be silent anymore about uh, racial injustice in uh, uh, racist attitudes or uh, micro macro aggressions in the church, stuff I see outside of the church, I'm not going to be silent and complicit anymore. And I feel ashamed that for many years, I mean, and I've spoken out before 
Uh, you can't be a person of color and person trying to lead a multiracial church without having some conversation about those things. But I think my spirit was more of, hey, I just I don't want to be the angry black man. Right. I want to be a minister who happens to be African-American, who loves and, and helps nurture and shepherd and lead people of all backgrounds with no respect to their background. So, so that was my conviction and that's how I, I lived. Uh, but I also feel like um, that did a disservice pretending as though racism doesn't exist in the church because we're diverse mm -hmm. and pretending that just ignoring it in the name of being apolitical would be helpful. And of course, it, it benefits you. If you're in the dominant culture, you can afford to be apolitical. If the political system has been designed from the beginning to advantage you and disadvantage others. And then, by the way, you can deny that it exists and keep moving with your life. So obviously, it's, there's a benefit. American Restoration Movement, you know, on sidelines during civil rights, you know, um, the Harding School of Theology didn't, wasn't integrated, didn't have uh, people of color until 1963. So anyway, I'm just I'm saying that um, that dichotomy exists. You can be diverse, you can love people of color and still um, have um, either indifferent, indifference to, toward racism or have racist attitudes that are beneath the surface. So I really appreciate what you're sharing. Uh, there's there's several things. First of all, what I hear you saying is that the pulpit is not a space that we selectively uh, promote justice for one group versus another. That you 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 see the pulpit space differently. I think the pulpit space has become very confusing for people, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't sound mm -hmm. like it's confusing for you. And I think that's important. Number mm -hmm. one, um, I think. I like to play devil's advocate because um, I used to be one of these opposers, actually. I used to shut mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. my grandparents. I used to shut down disciples who would talk about it. Oh, I'd shut them down hard. Um, mm. Here's here's a here's a critique that someone might say. Um, well, you, yeah. didn't, it, it, you didn't really have a problem in our churches until George Floyd got murdered. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like you have the same timing as the world. What about all those mm -hmm. years where we were playing nice in the sandbox together? Was that fake? Were you holding it in? Why didn't you give me a heads up? Why didn't you tell me you were feeling these things before George Floyd was murder, murdered? What, what, you mm -hmm. seem to have the mm -hmm. same timing as the world. What do you have to yeah. say to those who feel like all these years we were we were a multicultural kingdom or whatever and black black and brown people weren't saying anything? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I feel very strongly about that. I, I realize that narratives, we, we live in an age where narratives are um, deeply ingrained and they are very hard to change. And so um, also the idea of putting it on people of color, all of a sudden mm -hmm. now you are concerned about this as though there haven't been conversations for years about inequities in the world and in the church. And so, for instance, 20, I think 2022, if I'm not mistaken, is the 10th anniversary of the squad emphasis in the international church, social, social, cultural union, diversity groups. Okay. And they blew up 
and 2020. But there have been 10 years pr uh, prior to that of conversation or eight years with uh, people like Scott Kirkpatrick and others saying, we have a problem in our churches. There is inequity. There, is, there are uh, areas of um, inequality in terms of leadership, in terms of power dynamics. And, and there are elements of racist attitude, you know, and I think in people's minds think, well, if I'm not, if I'm not Derek Chauvin or I don't have a hood on, I, I can't be, I can't be racist. I, I love all people. And, and so that offense of calling me that I'm saying, okay, what about indifference? Are you indifferent to injustice? Are you indifferent to mm. the burden, the suffering that people that don't look like you have. So for instance, in your D group, are you okay with the fact that parents of color have to have a different conversation about how their kids deal with the police than you do? And you mm. don't have to, you haven't thought in your life about having that conversation. So you're like, hey, you know, I'm with you 100% here, but on that area, you're on your own. And so so if that, if, if you don't have a problem with that, that doesn't bother you not from a political standpoint, but from a love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, John 13, love each other as I have loved you. You know, Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, <laughs> let alone the 165 passages in the scriptures approximately on justice. I mean, Kyle, think about it. How many, how many messages on justice have you heard in your tenure as a Christian Compared to how many there are in the God, I mean, you know, right. Isaiah, Micah, uh, even the Torah, Jesus, don't neglect the, the, the more important matters of the law, justice, uh, faithfulness and mercy. Uh, you know, Luke 4, I've come to release the oppressed and all that. And, and it's as though we, we have our lens and we, we read those out of the Bible. So uh, I would also say. We've had, we've tried to have uh, people of color have have had and have have attempted to talk to others in our fellowship about this, but most people have not been willing to listen. What I'd say is, twenty twenty, there were more people uh, of the dominant culture that were willing to finally listen. I had so many people say to me, "It wasn't that I didn't believe you when you talked to me about how you were profiled in front of your wife and your children. Mm. It's that I just." couldn't quite wrap my mind around it because I, I that wasn't my experience and so right. you felt gas lit i don't know if it's gas lit or gas lighted but yeah. you felt that and that no 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 it's your fault that you never talked about this it's not my fault for not being uh being curious and being hey so what's it like for you what is it like for your experience to hunt the other 166 and a half hours when we're not singing next to each other and fellowshipping at church? What is it like for you and, and your, or your kids dealing with the police? What is it like for you uh, interacting in, in work environments where there's toxicity or whatever? And, uh, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself. So many of us became conditioned. I believe, Kyle, we are conditioned to assimilate and to just be happy in a diverse church, right? We're, right. we're much more diverse than the Christian churches, than the churches of Christ, than many evangelical churches. And so we should just be happy to be in the club. 
We don't need to have equity. We don't need to have uh, a seat at the table. We, we should just be happy. And so many people of color have learned to assimilate, as Kendi mm -hmm. would say. Uh, so we're assimilationists or we're accommodationists, and and we talk among ourselves because we know dominant culture is not going to listen. Oh, I had a guy say, I said, uh, and this dude actually was a black dude. And so, by the way, uh, racism is not just it's not just held by people in the dominant culture. Correct. Obviously, there's internal internalized racism and so forth. But he, he's a um, a black police officer who's a Christian. And I said, so so why is it out of 12 people on our staff, the only people who've been profiled and treated uh, with with aggression by police are black guys? He said, well, I don't know. Were you doing anything suspicious? You know, that sort of thing. And I, oh. I mean, and I'm a... I'm a I'm a, you know, 40-year oh, uh, minister, uh, you know, 44-year-old Christian. But it's just the level of conditioning, I believe, uh, as, as um, what's the guy's name? Ta-Nehisi Coates. We, we've been conditioned, I think, our culture and in the church, we have been conditioned not to see racism and we've been conditioned not to care. It's not our job. It's not our place uh you know so i've got this quote you know i've got a million quotes but the one that the, to me speaks to it it's king's quote uh, i would encourage everybody i say read the letter from a birmingham jail if you want to understand the dynamics of of kingdom and justice and and uh dealing with race but he talks about the moderate right and he says um i've i've, I've almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the negro's greatest stumbling block and the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who mm. prefers a negative peace, who prefers a negative peace with the absence of tension to a positive peace, uh, which is the presence of this. With your goal, but I can't agree with your methods of uh, direct action and he says shallow understanding from people of good will is an absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. i just think we have so long that we have missed that that means are a, a, a just dating solidarity having community difference between diversity and solidarity. Diversity right. is we're all together. Solidarity is I care about you, I stand with you, and I stand against what is wrong, and I stand for, I say what is wrong, I call out injustice, I care so much about you that I'm willing to, to speak rather than be indifferent or complicit. And uh, I, I, I believe, um, I honestly agree with Jamar Tisby's statement which uh, color of compromise i read that book i encourage everybody to read it mm -hmm. but the subtitle is the truth about the american church's complicity with racism i'm not talking about i am not an overt racist i'm talking about are you anti-racist are you pro uh justice are you an advocate do you do justice do you uh seek justice do you speak up as, as the writer Proverbs said in Proverbs 31, or are you indifferent? Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah, I, 
let me just relate for a moment in terms of being one of those people of color who was very resistant. Let me just say, and I, I write this in my book with Michael Burns um, that we're working on. So my my grandfather was from Arkansas and my grandmother was from Mississippi. And they would tell me about Jim Crow. They would tell me about the culture. And when we would talk, I'd stop my grandfather, which is crazy. He passed last October. Huge, huge uh, model in my life. Mm. My grandfather was a really important person. Mm -hmm. And one time he was, you know, he was a very successful businessman. Very, very successful in Kansas City history. He was uh, he was in the barbecue business. Long story short, one day he told me, he was like, now Kyle, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you. And he had said, yeah, if, if he was, if he would have been white, it would have been different. And I shut him down. I would shut down my cousin who studied, did black studies. I would, I would shut down other people. Why? The reason is, it's very simple. Because something in me was mm -hmm. wounded, right? When you're talking about discipling or blackness, uh, discipling blackness, you're, you're discipling a wound in many ways. And I wasn't ready to confront the pain of inadequacy. I wasn't ready to mm. confront wishing I was white since I was a young kid, trying to do my hair like the white kids at school. I never wanted to confront that. I just wanted to join a diverse church wow. where I didn't have to deal with it. And so the assimilation right. could go underground. I had a way mm -hmm. to assimilate mm -hmm. and not deal with the pain. And some of us listening right now, you might hear me as saying, oh, okay, so are you on the other side of it now? Are you BLM now, Kyle? Are you, are you, are you a Marxist person? Are you CRT now, Kyle? Um, I'm married to a white woman, okay? And her family now is very much enjoying to the struggle because their grandkids are not looked at as white. They're looked at as black. Like everything changes. And I would tell people too, if you think you're multicultural, that's fine. That That's great. You may be. I, but the game changes when you talk about marriage, even in the churches. That's when things change. That's how you find out what people mm -hmm. really feel. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just been amazing to see my wife's family embrace. And some of you will not appreciate what I'm about to say. My wife has a shirt that says, I can't calm down. I have a black son. I know that's offensive to some of you. I know that. And I hear you and your bodies are probably freaking out based off of what I'm saying. Um, but this is part of what I see in terms of a disconnect is in, in, in then I, in 2020, a little bit before that is when I really started sort of, you know, this term woke has been hijacked, unfortunately, but um, 2020 is when I decided not to just become someone who was aware of the struggle. 2020 and a little bit before that was when I finally decided I, I need to deal with this pain. I need to deal with this inadequacy wound. And so I think some people in a multicultural setting have made that a place and, and that is a place of escapism. I, I know some of you, mm -hmm. you don't hear this side of me come out very much. I know, I know, but I'm not going to sit here and apologize and be an emotional butler. Um, I, I need to be honest and say that there is an experience that even those of us of black and brown folks can at times suppress. And there are a lot of black, black ministers 
be surprised how many black ministers, you never know what they really feel. Not just black, but black and brown people. So anyway, I, I wanted mm-hmm. to share that before we transition wow. to our next, our next uh, question, because part of my, Kevin, part of my thing was, I just felt like all it did was cause more division. I'm like, okay, all, mm-hmm. all that happens mm-hmm. is when we talk about the past, we get triggered and we start, we start dividing. I want you to talk to the people who feel like all racial conversations really do in a multicultural church setting is divide the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, by the way, for sharing what you shared. And I had to, uh, I had to say something about uh, when you mentioned Please. the idea of woke, the idea of uh, woke. All right. So now um, there, there's a quote that I, that I posted. I'm going to, it's by David Swanson. Um, who is a pastor of a church in uh, Chicago. And I'm not looking at it right now. I'm going to, this is a paraphrase of it, but he just says, it's crazy how we've taken a uh, decades old slogan of black solidarity and awareness and manipulated it and twisted it beyond recognition into a tool for white power. And he talks about the, um, that just the the corrosive nature of whiteness. I don't mean white people. I mean whiteness. The the supremacy of whiteness. And and so uh, what I would say is it was remarkable to, remarkable to me to see people in 2020. Many people of the dominant culture, dear friends, dear friends, 20 year like you know people you've done life with in your community groups, in your churches for years, right? And never had conflict over this to say, I had no idea. I don't know if you experienced right. that. People, oh my goodness. I had no idea. This, oh, yeah. this is what your life was like. This is what your experience was like. This is what my, my brothers and sisters of color have been feeling. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And then in a matter of two weeks, go from, I had no idea to you're doing it wrong. BLM is doing it wrong. Colin Kaepernick did it wrong. CRT is doing it wrong. Robin DiAngelo is wrong. White white fragility is not a thing. So from I had no idea to now I'm an expert in race relations in the in the, in the United States in the church, and it just shows the 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 um, I I believe the the idea of supremacy of the dominant culture is it is i think programmed into the prefrontal cortex of people of all cultures because it is the atmosphere and it has been in american society for hundreds of years is it to a lesser degree than it was 200 years ago yes but it's still deeply in the foundation and so People went from, I didn't know to know, hey, I know this BLM is wrong. And how is a group that really is more similar to King's and the civil rights movement of the 60s than any other group that has spoken up for the sake of black and brown people say, your life matters. How has that been so demonized that that's wrong? Well, they're Marxist or they're Leninist. They said the exact same things about King and what's the point of that? They're okay. So the problem isn't racism and the Derek Chauvin's of the world. The problem is BLM. They're bad. CRT. Nobody can define what the heck it is. But the point is, 
It's bad. Oh no, my kid's going to be taught to hate themselves. No, what about teaching an honest, unsanitized history to all of our kids? But what has happened is because of the dominant culture, I would say, you know, one of the teachers that you know, that's what's happened. And, and, and by the way, you know, people are respond saying, hey, you're responding just like the world. You know what? So is the church. <laughs> the, the world, the, the world. And, and that's one of my people, you know, I talk Oof. to people and say, you know, well, we're the kingdom. Yes, but we are an American church with a Eurocentric patriarchal lens through which we have seen the world and how we've ministered. And so we reflect the world a lot more than we want to admit. What's going on in the world? You had a racial rec the burgeoning of a racial reckoning in 2020, and then you had a backlash to it, as has happened throughout American history. When there is racial progress, a black president, end of slavery, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, civil rights movement, there's always a backlash. We're living in a period of backlash. Why is anti-Semitism, anti-Asian hate, uh, you know, violent rhetoric, so forth. Why are those on the rise and have been for the past several years? It's a backlash. And in the church, we've seen a backlash. People who were, who were, um, hey, no, please teach me. And, you know, we, we read Michael Burns' books and we, we watch documentaries and we, we have talks and we join squads. But now, you know, I'm not so sure. Maybe that was an overreaction. Maybe, you know, maybe people, People are just being emotional and not dealing with, you know, the facts and so forth. And so I wish that I had the courage of uh, uh, many BLM members. And I wish that I had the conviction that to actually study something on critical race theory. People that think it, it's absurd. So so race didn't have any any function in the development of the United States of America. Race-based chattel slavery since 1619 is irrelevant. People, politicians in Florida of European descent are now experts on the right way to teach African-American history. Hey, man, and, and in the church, I, I, would, I hate to say it, but um, in the church, actually, I have learned that someone's faith has very little to do with their convictions, their, their views on race and their mm. convictions about racism from the research that I've done. And I could, I could, I could go into a lot. Well, do we have, can I, can I read some? Yes, you can. But let me, let me just say one of the challenges, whenever you directly address racism, people typically will retreat into their individualism. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's not me, Kevin. I, I get it. That's Derek. You, you mentioned that earlier, but that retreats into individualism. I think to some degree, number one, we need to be very curious about that. Okay. What, what, why are we retreating into individualism when we're talking about the, the empire? So this is the other thing that I think is kind of connected is, and I've recently learned, I was talking to my, my boy, BK apologist, Alfredo Valentin in New York, uh, holla. Okay. Um, he's an herbal, he's, he's incredible. I said, here's what I'm starting to understand. And this goes to your point that when we swear our allegiance to Christ, 
I've made this mistake in thinking, even with my own self, that that means the same thing that I've turned my back on empire. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think to some degree we can swear our allegiance to Christ, but in Galatians 2, we've got to be very mindful because Peter makes the very mistake that we're talking about. And it's interesting as we reimagine Galatians 2, who we imagine ourselves to be. We always see ourselves as Paul. We never see ourselves as Peter. <laughs> we would Peter, never be yeah. Peter. Very true. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. That's that's unconscionable. And so, I, but this idea of retreating into individualism, the pulpit is a space where you address the, the body as a whole. And mm-hmm. so my mm-hmm. question to you is, is how do you deal with the tendency to want to go into individualism when we talk about this issue? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And and man, there's so much, there's so many defense mechanisms, and it, it we we are conditioned. Uh, I had somebody, I did a speech, and I had someone uh, after the speech say, "I thought he, he wasn't there, but he listened to the record. He said, I thought you were calling me a racist. If hmm. I don't, if I don't speak out against justice the way that you say I should, I mean, speak right. out against injustice or advocate for it." then you're calling me a racist. Now, I didn't say that. I didn't anywhere in the speech, I never said anything like that. I said, I would apologize if I said something, but you are so used to, you had a strong reaction, so I inherently must have said something wrong. What about the possibility that you've got a bias that you've never dealt with, that you got offended by? What about that possibility? And it's as though that's not even, in the, in, you know, that's not even in the realm of, of credible thinking that that response would be that way. And so I think that's what I see R- relative to individualism. It's interesting. Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, tweeted recently that people of the dominant culture don't have any problem feeling a sense of pride of the accomplishments of uh, their culture or their ancestors when it comes to good things, right? Hey, hey, I didn't, I didn't have slaves. I would, so don't put that on me. I didn't do anything about that, but I'm proud that, you know, whatever my, you know, my family immigrated here or we fought the revolutionary war or whatever it is, but, but we can't have a sense of responsibility. Uh, Abraham Heschel, the famous uh, late um, Jewish rabbi that marched with King, as he was dealing with, and something I think that would help Kyle is we would look at this, compare it to the anti, the conviction against anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. the, you know, in, in light of the Holocaust. And you've got the Holocaust deniers. By the way, there's a rise in the United States of Nazism. Mm-hmm. There's a rise in the United States right now in terms of white Christian nationalism. Oh, they are they are. So, so those are realities that are in the church and outside of the church. But um, when, when, when it comes to the idea of individuality, Abraham, Abraham Heschel said his, his uh, quote was something to the effect of, some are guilty, all are responsible. Oh. I love that. And thinking about the Holocaust. So if you're, you're in Germany in the 30s, whatever, did you stand up? Did you speak out? Did you say this is wrong? Right. And he said, okay, I wasn't there. It's 2023. Some are guilty. 
but all are responsible. If I'm an image bearer and a Christian and I'm someone that is devoted to speaking the truth in love and loving my neighbor as myself and being one who does justice and righteousness, that's why I should care about this. It's not, hey, individually, I'm, I'm happy because I'm not a racist. I'm happy because I, I treat everybody with love. And I get the idea, hey, man, I've, I've had multicultural relationships as a Christian forever. And I've had people in my home. I have not discriminated. Amen. But have you spoken out when injustices have been done to people in your community group? We had a, a woman in one of our um, sister churches be profiled and roughed up by some police going to a church service here less than a year ago. It still happens. Does the church say anything? Do we stand up? Do we, when there's, you know, uh, when there are crimes, crimes and things that happen, do we say anything? That is that is individual discipleship. That is me being a disciple saying I am responsible to try to love people and to try to speak out for what's right. And I can't just go and well, I can, but it's selfish. Like I had a guy say, well, there's a guy said, hey, I didn't sign up to be and uh, I became a Christian. I didn't sign up to be um, an advocate. I didn't sign up to be an activist. I just want to love God and be a Christian. But you did sign up to speak the truth and to love your neighbor and to care enough about your uh, Kyle is in your group. Are you OK? Are you going to love the whole Kyle or are you going to love the assimilated Kyle that mutes himself and doesn't share about what it's like to be in brown skin? In the country are you going to love the whole person that's that's what i think the challenge before the church is it's going from cheap diversity as david swanson said diversity that doesn't cost me anything it i have no risk i i don't have to be uncomfortable to solidarity where i stand with and for other image bearers and i am willing to call out injustice and not ignore and be complicit with it and to me that's the choice either i'm going to be complicit or I am going to stand in opposition. I think with the tough thing, Kevin, as I'm starting to realize as I'm having to really get my head around this in a not just systemic way, but a you know, systematic versus systemic. So one is this idea that you can change one thing and then it'll create change throughout the system. That doesn't work. That's systematic. Mm-hmm. I just need to, you know, mm-hmm. what mess with the 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 gears on that. No. Systemic change is change on every level. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think to some degree, there's a lot of people when they think about systemic change, that change is needed in every area. They feel, I, I think a lot of white brothers and sisters feel absolutely powerless. And mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. of them, they hear, like, let's not be dumb. Like when I'm around, I'm just, I mean, it's, I'm going to just say it when I'm around people of color, there at times can be a freedom to express certain things, even in the, even in the kingdom or the church. I know for a fact when white folks are together, just like with black folks, there is a, a level or a depth. Um, and they hear things. And so I think to some degree, I think there's a lot of white folks who feel powerless because their neighbor who makes this, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, or whatever, they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? 
Again, individualism right. creates a powerlessness right. towards systemic change. And so what do you have to say? Because mm-hmm. I think the metric has been, well, if we just convert people, again, swearing our allegiance to Christ back on empire, if we just right. convert the police officer, if we, if we had converted Derek Chauvin, he wouldn't have done that. Um, what I hear you mm-hmm. saying is that swearing your allegiance to Christ doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't in some ways still very much committed to empire. And so evangelizing is, is it doesn't seem like it's the most holistic solution. In other words, the way we define yeah. evangelism doesn't seem to be as holistic as God's vision for evangelism. So anyway, I, the powerlessness, Man, is there something so you good. like to say about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I can, we can feel that way too. And, and there are many people of color that feel like in, in our fellowship, that just feel like there's no hope. We've had this conversation. I've tried. I know one guy, he says, I, I've given up on the church. Just, I, I've tried to have this conversation. I've had it so many times and people just won't listen. And you look at the enormity of the problem. How am I going to make a dent in a 400 and whatever, two year, three year mm-hmm. trend toward white supremacy? And, and because it's better now doesn't mean that it's, uh, what what God would desire, and if if right. there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, we're all one. If that is the case, and we want to actualize that, live that, we've got more to do. Uh, and it's like anything else. Hey, I can't save the world. Go evangelize the world. By the way, that's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where that is in the scriptures, but the idea of hey, we're going to change the world. That's been you know our uh, conviction of our fellowship of churches, and we all know. What can I do? I can love my neighbor. I can personally, in my social media, in my conversations, I can proactively say, uh, if somebody makes a statement or a comment that is uh, ungodly or, or that is uh, racist or that is anti-Semitic, I can make a choice. Hey, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to offend this person. Or I could, or I could say, you know what? Uh, I appreciate our relationship. I appreciate our friendship. Uh, but I'm, I just, I don't think that that statement is, that's not helpful. Uh, I, I don't, I, I would prefer if you not say that or do that. I know, I know that sounds like something small, but if more people would do that, in other words, not be silent, I think change would be produced. Now, I know people feel like, well, hey, I don't want to lose a friendship. I don't want to re- lose a relationship. I get that. But I am unwilling to to lose myself, my integrity as a Christian and as an image bearer to stay silent and be complicit in an ongoing, uh, you know, sinful attitudes of people. Uh, I'm unwilling to do that. So the question is, what does it cost you to not say or do what you know is right? What does it cost you in terms of, of, of your conviction and your soul and and I think like anything else, Kyle, if somebody re- if you really want to be a part of the solution, there are so many groups to join, so many books to read, so mm-hmm. many. I've got two books. Faithful anti-racism is a book that I would highly recommend. It's up here on my mantle. Um, there's a, another book that we read called "Be the Bridge," and it gives practical, peacefully protest. Just speak up rather than be silent. When you have the choice, when something, let's say. Um, 
I don't know, uh, let's say that it's January 6th, the, the attack on the Capitol, right? And you have a chance to just ignore it or you have a chance to say, wow, that hadn't happened in 200 years. Something's really wrong here. That's wrong. That's evil to talk about hanging the vice president, to walk around in the right. Capitol with a Confederate flag. Not, oh, well, I'm not sure. It Did it really happen? And, oh, well, we shouldn't be involved in you know, man, I, I, I just so here, here's what I would say is if your heart, if your conviction is I want to make a positive difference, but what can I do as one person? You can be one person who as a disciple, which is a learner, you devote yourself. OK, I'm going to spend the next X number of whatever learning how to be an advocate for justice, learning how to be an anti racist, not just an indifferent non-racist. You can do that. We all know how to, we're Christians, right? We know how to learn. We know how to go to a D group. We know how to, we want to learn how to be a better husband, a better wife, a better couple. We we go to marriage dynamics. We go to make marriage simple. Uh, we want to learn as what you're doing, uh, healing trauma. Okay. All right, man. I, I feel like I've, I've had, to, okay. I go to therapy. I get counseling. I mean, there's a way to do it. So I think it's more of the heart to do it and that you did sign up to love people to this degree when you became a Christian. And you got to give up one of two things. You have either have to give up your comfort. I've had to get, hey, we all know as a Christian, right, to grow, you're going to have to deal with stuff that's uncomfortable. How can I be a better husband? Whatever. Uh, but you got to either give up you got to be willing to give up comfort or you need to be you need to be willing to give up the illusion that you really do love your neighbor as yourself and you really do love the person of color in your church as yourself no you love them to a degree you love them to the degree that it doesn't make you uncomfortable but if it does then they're on their own you'll deal with them in you know studying the bible and uh talking about finances and marriage but when it comes to race, you're on your own. I, 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 and, and that signal has gone out. That bat signal has gone out loudly and clearly to many people of color in our churches. And they're like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to. This is not what I thought it was. Right. I thought we were all down. I thought it was one for all, all for one. But no, 2020 and beyond show me, no, we're not exactly. We're up to a degree. As long like Lecrae, you know, the, the rapper, as soon as he started speaking out against racial oh, injustice, yeah. his, his followership shrank. Why? It's because it was conditional. It's conditional love. And, and to a degree, we're all conditional. I'm just saying, you know, um, I think we need to be real about it. So, Well, there, there's, there's a prior commitment. And I'm just I'm going to say that I had a prior commitment. My, my, my prior commitment was emotional. I got into mm -hmm. a lot of emotional scholarship. And then I, I, I got a whole stack of books over there. Soon Chan Ra, I think he's got uh, Unsettling <laughs> yeah. Truths. Doctrine of Discovery yep. is very unsettling. Yep. Uh, you got my man, Myths America Lives By. See, part of it is the American exceptionalism that is imported into, especially restorationism. And yep. it's this sort of frontier theology, which, you know, religion on the frontier developed in a way that was consistent with American meritocracy. So in other yeah. words, individualism in the church 
our individualism very much affects our evangelism. And so Jesus's point with the Good Samaritan is, I want to take somebody who freaks you out. That's yeah. kingdom, right? If you love him yeah. like I love you, you're mine. You belong to me. John 13, you were yeah. mentioning 30, 30, 30, 33, 35. Yeah. The world will know that you belong to me by your love for love. the Samaritan, yeah. not just for your love for one yeah. another. Yeah. That's yeah. the premise. And then to your yeah. point about a world evangelism, yeah. the way Jesus envisions evangelism is, okay, you want to start in Judea, Jerusalem, then you need to go to Samaria. It's not Jerusalem yeah. to everywhere else. No, you need to go through Samaria. Yeah. And so yeah. to me, yeah. this is most visible as we think about evangelism. You know, it's interesting to me, like we live in North Omaha. Um, Omaha mm -hmm. is very segregated. We live in the hood. All right. Mm -hmm. um, we got a halfway house down the street, down the other street. We got other stuff I don't want to get into publicly, but there's stuff. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is where the rest. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not throwing shade, like, because we're yeah. building a house and we're about to move. But it's interesting. I don't know how people feel about evangelizing in the hood. Like, do you really want to <laughs> come over <laughs> here and share the good news? Because this is somewhere we were warned not to move to because it's not a good area. Okay, well, what's a good area? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, is that an area that's a part of the mission? See, for some of you, it mm. sounds like I'm going on a rant, right? Maybe yeah. I am. <laughs> anyway, long story short, to me, I would say even in churches now, those of you who do not believe that it's segregated, if you don't want to look at what's happening on Sunday, just look at what's happening every day of the week. Where do your people live? That tells you mm. a lot. Well, and what am I supposed to do? Buy a house in the hood? I mean, am I going to get jacked in this and that? And I'm just right. like, okay, well, these are the types of embedded perspectives that never really get challenged. We'll, we'll send yeah. somebody across yeah. the world, but we won't send them across town. What does that tell you? Wow. So profound. Yeah. Well, and you think about even in the restoration movement, heroic uh, churches throughout the centuries I mean, throughout the decades, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, thousands, sending missionaries and millions of dollars to evangelize black and brown people, still, though uh, not engaging those very kinds of people and advocating for their well-being right down the street. It's, it's, it's that weird dichotomy where you can separate the two. Okay, that's spiritual, but this is this is societal. This is hmm. social justice. And, and by the way, why is social justice a pariah? Like social means of people. Like how can you love people and not advocate for their well-being? I appreciate you mentioning the Good Samaritan. Honestly, Kyle, if I could say anything about this, um, when we look at this area, just like wanting uh, women to be uh, valued and, and uh, loved and Jesus conviction about lifting up the, the you know, women and womanhood, right? In a, in a uber patriarchal society, just like wanting, you know, uh, wanting people uh, to have what they need in life, that spirit, the American spirit, I, that is to me what this is about. Mm. It's about seeing somebody in need or who has been abused or who has been harmed historically or and in real time and saying 
the heart of God is to stop what I'm doing and to go help this dude. Mm. Whereas the people that had knew the word of God the best had the least that had the, the those that had the word of God didn't have the heart of God. And here's mm. a some oh. certain Samaritan wow. Wow. who 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 didn't have who by all I mean I'm sure he wasn't as versed as a Levite or a priest. And and yet he has the heart of God. And I, I I'll tell you, uh, in 2020 we're marching. You know we're having these protests and we're marching and we're, you know, kneeling on Lancashire Boulevard in um, L.A. for either not, whatever it was, eight minutes and 46 seconds, or nine minutes and 10 seconds, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And we got people of all colors on their knees out here, all religious faith or no faith. Who are joined by a common Amago Day, a common humanity saying, This is wrong. Why are they why do they care more than people that I worship with? And isn't that an indictment that are are we more Pharisaic or or, or are we more do we have more of the heart of the Good Samaritan? Uh, that to me is, and, and my conviction is, hey, I know that uh, there are many people that just aren't open. We have been conditioned for decades to not see this and to not care about it. So I know some of that condition isn't going to change, but I know there are some, it's always a minority, I know there's some who, who the Spirit has been nudging them. And I just want to say, why not have the why not have the uh, ambition to be, I want to be more like the Good Samaritan and I want to be less like the priest and Levite. And I care, God cares about the widow, mm -hmm. the immigrant, the oppressed, the orphan. Uh, we haven't even talked about immigration, right? The, the oh. horror of the attitudes that so many Christians have toward oh, yeah. immigrants, uh, which is influenced by the world. And so I would say, those of us that say, hey, well, that's the church. This is the church and this is the world. Hey, the church reflects the world more than you realize and imitates more than you realize in many areas. But Leviticus, you know, it's all through the scriptures. Hey, love the foreigner. Leviticus, whatever it is, 17 mm -hmm. or 19. You were once foreigners. Yeah. Love them. Love your neighbors. I love myself. Regardless of their circumstance, doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're for lawlessness, but but it's just the way uh, we can ignore the scriptures. We sure know which scriptures to to glom onto and which ones to ignore, right? And and love the immigrant, love the foreigner, do justice, speak out, help the oppressed. Uh, I mean, it's all throughout the scriptures, and I I just want to encourage us: don't don't shut down the conversation, even right. if if you disagree. That's okay. I that, that doesn't bother me. When have the majority of Americans or American Christians ever, ever, <laughs> ever been the ones on the edge of, you know, advocating for justice? It's, it's never been the majority. That's okay. Right. I want to just say that I, I think evangelism, the heart, the heart of evangelism is God's vision for wholeness. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. we go by that definition that it's about, Mishpat. yes, God's vision for wholeness, meaning that you're going to take a person and all of their needs and the church is supposed to be a place that considers the whole person and doesn't ask people right. to leave parts of themselves at home. 
Right. And so the next generation, they have front row seats in this show. Mm-hmm. They are seeing things and they are watching. They're looking. Even when they don't think we're watching, Kevin, you know this. They yeah. see. And they see the perspective that Christians have about racism, about marginalization, and what we are seeing in terms of their attitude is they, in some ways, I think, see a lot of hypocrisy. So people ask questions about why are we not reaching our kids? I wonder if, if, if you're listening to this right now, I wonder if your kids to some degree at times have rejected your version of what you want them to accept because there is major hypocrisy in this area. And, and if, if they're pushing back, is it, is it possible? Look, I'm not saying that I've got all the answers, but is it possible just asking a question that part of what they're pushing back on is this incongruence that Kevin has talked, what you're talking about in terms of the incongruence, Kevin, that something is not matching up. And so I just wonder in your dialogue with the next generation, what's been their perspective? Wow, thank you for that question. And it's always multifaceted. Uh, this this generation has been has gone through a lot, and and mm. uh, so I think it's not just one thing. That's one th- that I will say that definitively. We 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 would do well not to try to black and white it and oversimplify it. However. Uh, you know, there's been a conversation going on in our churches about what is the, the greatest danger of facing our churches. And some think that it's the idea of losing our concern or conviction about the scriptures, you know, or, or, or it's progressive theology, mm-hmm. which is in the name of just being relevant, um, minimizing what the scriptures teach and, um, and focusing on what the culture is demanding. Had an mm-hmm. elder tell me, "Hey, we just go by the word of God. We don't, we don't cave to culture." And I said, "That's not true. All <laughs> of us are shaped by culture. You're just shaped by a different culture than the next gen, uh, but you don't, but you, you don't uh, recognize that." But uh, I, what I think is a danger, and what we're dealing with, is people see us read the scriptures, but they do not see us doing something about injustice, doing something about oppression, doing something about marginalization, doing something, the, the woman at the well or the Good Samaritan or, or the person that, and, and obviously, and I don't want to ignore heroic work, noble work, hope worldwide. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that our churches have not done incredibly heroic, noble, Christ-like benevolent work and aren't doing it. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that we have not matched in that area. We've not matched our same conviction and care about marginalization and injustice. And so I think that the issue is not progressive theology and trying to be relevant. They're saying you're not living what you preach and what I read that you tell me you believe. You tell me you believe that. You tell me, show you in the Bible and you'll do it. But that's not your heart. You just, you got, I mean, I feel like it's, 
I think our biggest danger, honestly, personally, is being Pharisaic. And I get the Pharisees now. They weren't. Some of them, I'm sure, were evil dudes. Most of them, they were. They were just. They couldn't. They would not see the world through a different frame. And Jesus tried to pour new wine, and they just weren't willing to see it. That's where many of us are. I'm not willing to. I've been doing Christianity this way forever. I'm not willing to. to to reimagine, wow, maybe I missed some things here, mm. or maybe I need to do it differently. So I think that's what's affecting them. And and I, I would say this, um, it, it's not like this is a magic bullet, but I do think integrity preaches. Consistency, congruence, integrity always preach. And, you know, the, the famous quote, I'd rather see a sermon and hear one any day. So, uh, I just, yeah, wow. I, I believe it's a, I, I think it's really, really important. And there's like a ton more I could say on it, but yeah, I just, um, I think they're watching and, uh, you can't, can't fake it. Uh, and, and, and the idea that the world being relevant is somehow bad. Shouldn't you want to be relevant? Should you want to be salt and light? I mean, isn't that what we're called to do in the scriptures? I don't see mm. it as being relevant. I see it as actually living what we say we believe. That's what I see it as. And I, and I go back to this statement that, and I'll just say this in closing, that there's a prior commitment. Um, it's mm-hmm. been passed down intergenerationally, even subconsciously in, in most cases. Many of these beliefs are intergenerationally transmitted. And it's this superiority, it's the elitism, it's the yeah. tribalism. And we're tribal. Look, tribe is not wrong, yeah. but we overdo yeah. tribe. Part of the story of tribe has to do a lot of times with trauma. It's a, it's a reflex. Even when I think about yep. this fellowship of churches, it's very much a reflex to in reconciliation with the parent denomination, right? This is a stream mm. mm-hmm. that has a lot. I mean, there's a story there in terms of irreconciliation and tribalism and exclusivism and judgment and trying to prove something. And so, you know, again, through the lens of trauma, we don't just sort of diagnose through the lens of trauma, we have, we have compassion. Like I have compassion on, Mm. I have compassion on people who are struggling with their inner inner bigot and inner bigot Mm -hmm. is Dr. Schwartz talks about. Um, a lot of people don't even know how to partner with that inner bigot. That's part of what I'm going to write in my book is I wouldn't say anti, like, so for me, when I think of anti, it, it makes people go into their, the like protector part sometimes what I think right, is important right. is the process of unblending. So you have this part of you that you think you are, and then some of it is, it needs to go through the process of discipleship and unblending is where we take the superiority, right? Cause whiteness is not bad, but there's a lot of mm-hmm. superiority mm-hmm. attached to it. How can we help someone be white and loved and be proud of their culture? But, but unblend from the superiority. So this this is stuff that you know I'm going to be addressing more and more. Um, but anyway, Kevin, I just I'm so grateful that we finally we finally connected, brother. And and I want to say to you, yeah, what I tell all my guests, brother, we are with you. There are many, 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 many people with you, and God is for you, my brother. Thank you for coming on. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough for the conversation, and I feel like. We could talk for five more hours. There's oh, so many resources, so many oh. resources. But I would also say, 
to the person from the dominant culture out there. There are so many great authors, mm. David Swanson, mm -hmm. Daniel Hill, Robert Long, David, David Gushy. Uh, they're just, they're, there are people of the dominant culture who have faced this head on. No one is, no one is looking for white guilt. No one is looking for your bad because of how God made you. The whole point of all of this is honoring how God made all of us. So there are people who have navigated that tension and, and that, like you said, dealing with their inner unblending. There are people you can learn from. Yes. We're not, I'm not, we're, this is not somebody, we're not against, we're not, you know, uh, this is not out of love, I'm out of lack of love. That's why it's not out of love, right. it's not out of lack of love. Right. And uh, I heard Jim Tisby say, uh, I, I, share, I, I share this not because I don't love the church. I love the church, but I hate racism because mm -hmm. it is counter to the love of God. But I say this out of love for the church and love. We've, I've been in this 44 years, and I have wow. countless dear friends of every background that, that we've ministered to each other, and we all want to make it to the end and we all want to be our best image bearing selves and best Jesus following selves that that's what this is a part of that so but thanks a million man I'm uh I'm gonna keep my subscription okay uh, okay okay cool <laughs> man and, and hey even, it, it... <laughs> yeah nowadays even before we met <laughs> I appreciate that man well those of you that have watched the entire video, I just want to say bless you. Thank you for investing your time. Uh, it's my pleasure and it is my uh, heart to continue to invest, provide content that allows for conversation. And I'm just grateful to be able to do that. I'll see you next time.